Open our lips, O God, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. If the saying is true, a picture paints a thousand words, then the picture that the gospel writer is painting today, let's just say he used a thousand words and then some. It's a pretty fantastic image, if you will, these two men who are standing there. One is arrayed in all of the garments, the sashes, the, all the things that say, I have a power, I have authority, I have position, I have status, I have Rome, not a small symbol. The other one is standing there. He's already got bruises on his face from being beaten by the guards, bound, wearing clothing that wouldn't make him stand out in a crowd. These are the two characters. One is free and the other is not. One is secure and the other is not. But the gospel writer in this painting of a picture is making a massive mockery out of the supposed prominence and authority of Rome. Because we realize it is not Pilate who finally has the authority, who has the power, who's free and secure. Today is the church's celebration of Christ the King, and it can be kind of a fuzzy thing, because when we hear this king imagery, we think, what, of monarchies and scepters and crowns and all this stuff, and, and what are monarchies about but getting people to pay homage and respect and obedience. And monarchies and empires, what are they about? About exerting power. What was Rome about? Exerting power and keeping that, I don't even know how they said it with a straight face, that Pax Romana. Yeah, yeah, the peace of Rome, doggone it. Because if you don't stay in what we think is the peace of Rome, well, we'll just kill you. And we'll hang your head in the town square so people know we have peace here, thank you. And we have the authority to make sure you feel secure. Yeah, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But it's clear from the beginning of this story that, again, it's not Pilate or Rome who has the authority here who is secure here, who is at peace here. It's Jesus. I mean, just look at the exchange itself. I mean, when you are in the position of power and authority to keep the peace, so to speak, and you have an accused supposed perpetrator in your midst, what do you do? You do the questioning. You work to extract the confession, correct? Pretty simple. But in this story, immediately, Pilate stops being the one about the questions, and it's Jesus who's questioning Pilate. And it's not Jesus who makes the confession. It is Jesus getting Pilate to make the confession, extracting the confession out of Pilate. So you're a king, Pilate says, and Jesus goes, isn't that interesting? Listen to what you just said. Pilate tries to maintain some facade that he's in charge, but it's clear from the evangelist's description but the one with the power and authority and the peace and the security is Jesus. So this feast day of Christ the King, where did it come from? I'm sure you remember from Bible school, but I'll just refresh your brain because I had to Google it myself. 
You know, seasons like Holy Week and Lent began to emerge in the fourth century and began being practiced since then. Advent and Christmas come around the fifth, sixth century. So we got some old traditions of liturgical year. Christ the King, anyone want? You don't have to guess, but 1925. It's not even 100 years old. And yet it's our last day of the liturgical year. And so you might be wondering, what was it that was going on in 1925 that would cause the Pope to say, let's see, World War I, one more of those European tribal conflicts where the empires and the monarchies are saying, we will make it safe, so we'll go destroy those people to make you feel safe. And once again, the empires served to leave basically just destruction not to mention hundreds of thousands of lives devastated, generations devastated because of feeding the empire, feeding the monarchy. And the Pope is trying to say, how many more generations will be slaughtered? How many economies in the name of saving and protecting our economies will we devastate? How long will we continue to accept this narrative that empire will save us? And how much carnage will lie in its wake? And I'm guessing the Pope thought, you know, this stuff of empire and monarchy is so deeply ingrained in us. I mean, since the beginning of time, essentially. Maybe the Pope's saying, okay, I'd love to give you a completely different metaphor, but if you're stuck on monarchy and empire, let me suggest, let me flip monarchy on its head and suggest to us that all the narratives of the monarchy and the empire simply continue to crave and support death in this supposed sense that it's going to make us secure. But let's look at Jesus. Let's look how Jesus is in relationship with human beings versus how the empires are in relationships with human beings, finally. Let's look at how Jesus understands not just the inherent dignity of every human being, but the inherent capacity of every human being. There's no hierarchy saying, we really are the ones who know how to keep you safe. And it might not be perfect, but you know it's all going to go to hell if you don't keep feeding us. You guys just don't know enough. But Jesus, who is one who says it's not just the dignity, it's the capacity of every human being that God understands. It's Jesus in how many healing stories after healing stories who says, your faith made you well, not me. It's you. He's recognizing the capacity of all these people who the culture says, you don't have capacity, you have no value, you have no meaning, you're just more of the subterfuge that we can use to kind of make ourselves feel safe and amass whatever we want to amass and build our empires. And the Pope is trying to say, will you please, as a species, flip this on its head and understand what will save us? Mutuality of relationship, seeing inherent capacity, breaking down everything that separates human beings. But Jesus, this isn't just something that he's conjured up, it's something he experiences. Because for Jesus, power and authority and relationship are grounded in his experience of God. 
is experience of God who comes to be with people, not to have power over them. God who rises up all those that every culture and every time has said they're the ones that are expendable and says, no, in fact, they're the ones who have the wisdom and the capacity. When Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying something about the sweet by and by. My kingdom's about something way out there yonder, and it's so pious you just couldn't understand it. That's garbage. He's saying, you know, there's a system of values that exist right here in human beings. And for some, power is about exerting over. And for others, it's about drawing us as one species, not pretending that we're different races and ethnicities. That's what's being flipped. That's what Jesus understands because he's experienced it with God. That inherent amazingness of God that says, I see human flesh as beautiful and I see you as a species, not as groups. Well, here's where it gets kind of tricky for the church because that's a real appealing definition on one. Well, maybe it isn't, but it should be. (laughs) If it isn't, let's go to our prayer chambers. (laughs) That image of how is it that we already have the inherent capacity to live as one species rather than people that we categorize. But when we get into this kind of monarchy of Jesus, the church, because this monarchy stuff is so ingrained in us, starts to slip Jesus into those pictures of Jesus with his scepter and his crown and the person we're supposed to obey lest, you know, we go to that dangerous place because we didn't behave right and we're all going to hell and all that kind of stuff. And the church promotes one more system of hierarchy and not what Jesus did. Instead of, instead of the church generating a grounded humility, we just participate in one more system of kind of triumphal monarchy and a certain triumphalism. Jesus is better than the rest. Really, right? I mean, how else do you defend manifest destiny? Knowing the genetic backgrounds of most of you, I'd say at least 90% of us live here and are descendants of people who came here to say, well, God told us to come here. And I know there were some people here, but they were kind of inconvenient. I know, it's, it's horrific that we think this way. How do we support holy wars? Instead of seeing the kingdom of Jesus as something that drives us together, we have taken this triumphalism and claimed it as something that allows us to devour others in the name of holiness and virtue. Now, I'm guessing that most of us here as well don't succumb to some sense that, you know, Christianity really is better and Jesus loves us so much so we can just lay waste to other people in the name of Jesus. But I want to ask you to raise your hand because I'll have to raise mine. Have you ever, on one of those days when you just really couldn't help yourself, said, Jesus, I thank you I'm an Episcopalian and not... (laughs) And I'm not going to look out because then I've got to make eye contact with you, you know? And, And I'm glad we're laughing on the one hand, but it's just so doggone true, you know, because... We're just so much better than those folks, and we think differently than those folks, and we, and man, it's deadly. 
because we play right into everything that separates. Because once again, we've bought the triumphalistic narrative of empire that says some of us are just maybe a little bit better because of what we believe and how we act. And we have just bought the separation. We really are better than you. And I think about some of the vestiges of that crud. And I'm thinking about it as we go through this koinonia process. I'm thinking about the phrases that are floating around right now at this time of year. This is one of the holy grails of America. Those of us who have been blessed need to give back. I've been blessed, so I need to give back. Man, triumphalism. We need to give to the have-nots, we who have. And think of that very language. And one of the things that's infiltrated this community of faith, a, a holy infection the last couple of years, are a couple of books, one called Toxic Charity and one called The Alternative, where people who have been involved in philanthropic, philanthropic foundations for decades suddenly had the awareness one day, not suddenly, but over a period of time, that everything they've been doing for decades not only has not changed the economic separation of this country, but in fact, their charitable work has continued to keep it in place. And it's what we're wrestling with right now, because everything I was raised on as a middle-class suburban white kid during the baby boom you work hard like Pilate, and you get your stuff, but unlike Pilate, you're good with it, and you give back, and you help those, and you hand out turkeys on Thanksgiving. And I'm not condemning people who do that, but what the research is showing is that our charitable work is keeping economic separation in place, and it's feeding the narrative of the empire. If you achieve, you're somehow a little bit better, and now you get to demonstrate that by how magnanimous you are which is like this narcotic that we're all snorting because it makes us feel good. An empire loves narratives that make us feel good. Keeps the other narratives in place. And so we fall into that place of supremacy. And what these books are showing is that what's happening with our philanthropy is that there's also this other thing that we succumb to. We know what's best for these folks because after all, we're a little bit better and we're the ones who need to manage it and make sure they behave right because they don't have the capacity to do so. So we've got to teach them how to do that. And we don't recognize the inherent capacity of every human being and instead build resentment and continued separation. And this triumphalism just finds, like a good virus, one more way to show itself and make us feel like we're good in the process. Now, don't hear me saying, stop all of the things today. But what I do hear in this Christ the King metaphor of flipping the narrative of empire is how do we keep challenging everything we've been hearing? How do we keep challenging everything that keeps separating human beings? Everything that, even in the most subtlest way, says they don't have the capacity, so we'll manage the resources because we know. Everything that keeps us from forming boards and foundations and hierarchies that keep reflecting the same people because, after all, we've accomplished and we've achieved and we know what's going on. We don't want it to fall apart. It might not be perfect, 
And Christ the King is throwing that on its ear. And it didn't start with pious. It started with Jesus who said, your faith has made you well. Don't listen to the narrative of the empire. Don't listen to the narrative of the monarchs because they're just going to keep you outside. And they're going to keep telling you that you have nothing to offer because it feeds and keeps them secure. But Jesus has not bought that because his experience of God blows that up completely. His experience of God has created in him a sense of the mutuality of all human beings. Again, not just the inherent dignity, but the inherent capacity of every human being. And so Jesus looks at Rome, Jesus who grounds himself in his experience of God and says, what can you do to me? Yeah, you can take my life, but so what? Really? I've really found the freedom. I've really found the relationship. And if it means you trying to make an example out of me because of what I have experienced with people, I'll take that risk. Because the mutuality of my experience of people, Jesus is saying, is what really gets me security and peace and life. And Rome will never know that. And every country that's in existence today still has vestiges of Rome. Let's just amass one more army. Let's send them to one more border to make us feel safe. Not perfect, but you know it's going to fall apart if you don't keep feeding it. And the Pope and Jesus are saying, flip it. If you want to find peace, go to human relationship. So you may have realized that as a church, we don't sing, on, we don't sing onward Christian soldiers anymore. Yeah, I know, that's really a tough one. <laughs> if you're not sure why we don't sing it, look it up. Yeah, there's a little bit of triumphalism in there with the cross of Jesus dug on it. And we still have to keep looking at all our prayers in the prayer book and all our hymns in the hymnal because this triumphalism is so subtle and it feeds and then one day we're right there doing charity and thinking we're bringing about the kingdom of God and the research is saying, you know what brings the kingdom of God? Being in relationship. You know what brings freedom? Letting go of thinking you can control something and manage it. That's the monarchy of Jesus. That's the freedom of Jesus. And it's no coincidence that the church puts this feast day on the last day of the year. It says, if you haven't learned anything else all year, Hold on to this foundation, this definition of monarchy, because it's the only thing that's ever outlasted all the empires who thought they'd live forever. Human relationship. Amen.